Hi, everyone. Welcome. This is Robin Sills from Trinity Health of New England, St. Mary's Hospital. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Medically Speaking. I hope everyone's doing well. So we're really happy um, you could join us tonight. We um, are focusing on Lung Cancer Awareness Month. November is Lung Cancer Awareness. I remember back in the day, um, the American Cancer Society used to do the Great American Smoke Out. And here in the greater Waterbury community, we always did um, a really big thing with the American Cancer Society and the Great American Smoke Out. And I think that the awareness is there. Um, I do think that, you know, we still have a long way to go in combat, combating the, the disease and, and teaching our young people not to smoke and do all those things along the lines of smoking, vaping that leads to smoking. You know, I, I saw some statistics that I want to share with you about every two and a half minutes, someone in the United States is diagnosed with lung cancer. And every day, lung cancer takes the lives of more than 382 individuals. You know, those are our friends, our neighbors, our loved ones. And, you know, those are some scary statistics, but I think it's important for us to realize that it's still out there. There's still so much we can do. And there's definitely hope, for sure. There's a lot more Americans surviving lung cancer. Yes, is that all from smoking? You know, Johnny, I'm going to let our expert. Oh, okay. <laughs> and that's a good segue into introducing our expert. So I'm really excited um, to share with you tonight um, a brand new surgeon who has joined uh, Trinity Health of New England is with me um, at St. Mary's Hospital. I've gotten the privilege to know thoracic surgeon, Dr. Stefan Kachala. Hi, Doc. Hi, good evening, Robin. Such a pleasure to be on with you and Johnny tonight. Thanks oh, so thank me. you. Thank you so much for joining us. So I just want to, you know, talk a little bit about you quickly so our audience knows um, your your history. So uh, Dr. Kachala is board certified um, by the American Board of Surgery and Thoracic Surgery. Um, he joined us just, um, I think, in the late spring, right, Doc? You joined us? That's correct. That's correct, yeah. And you obtained your uh, Doctor of Medicine degree from uh, Robert Wood Johnson Medical School at Rutgers um, and then completed an internship and residency in general surgery at New York Presbyterian uh, Cornell Medical Center and followed by a cardiothoracic surgery residency at the Cleveland Clinic. You are well-renowned already, and we were able to steal you a bit from a competitor in the state. (laughs) So I'm pretty excited yeah. to tote that we got you from Hartford Healthcare. So, yeah, no, I think the only thing to add to that is that you know my interest in cancer goes way back to uh, really medical school. I was able to spend some time at uh, the National Institutes of Health at the National Cancer Center, wow. um, as well as uh, spending another research fellowship in thoracic surgery at Memorial Sloan Kettering. So really try to broaden my horizons to kind of help understand this disease battle to serve our patients. You must have seen so much. I mean, you've been at so many institutions, and and you must have seen so much. And, I mean, are we getting better? Well, I think uh, it's helping you understand what works and what is the best way to kind of reach patients and help them understand. But I think getting back to what you are talking before about this being Lung Cancer Awareness Month, this, we have a tool now, and it wasn't something that's always been available to us. We have a tool that's identified a way to find these earlier stage patients. You know, what we've been doing, with been able to achieve with breast cancer, right. with prostate cancer, with colon cancer, with regular screening, 
we now have a tool and uh, it's CT scans. And if you're a smoker and you've been smoking for at least 20 years and you're at least 50 years of age, you're eligible. It'll be covered by insurance for a screening CT scan. And then you want to discuss that with your doctor in terms of what, you know, what could we possibly see? But essentially what it affords us the ability is to take these cancers because the vast majority of lung cancer presents in a late stage. It's difficult to treat. It becomes a difficult course versus with screening, we can identify these early stage people that are curable, that are easy, that are more local, and thus a minimally invasive surgery is a great option for them. Can avoid sometimes the burdens of chemotherapy and everything else. So, you know, let's let's talk about the screening a bit. So, sure. you know, definitely if you're a smoker, right? So how, number one, how often are you allowed to do a CT of the lung for screening purposes? So if it's for screening purposes and there's no findings after the first year, you do it annual annually wow. during your time. Now, if, if there's findings, if on your first finding we have some questionable nodules, well, then the frequency may be increased because we may want to more closely monitor these. But essentially, if the nodules are very small, like let's say less than five millimeters, so we're talking about perhaps smaller than the the fingernail on your pinky, wow. then, you know, maybe a, a CT scan in a year will be sufficient. If it's anything bigger, we may want to follow you more closely or even move straight on to biopsy. How about someone that's quit smoking, has a history of smoking? Like, what, what, where, where do they fall into the criteria of a screening? So, let's say you smoked for about 20 years, mm. but you quit eight years ago. You're still eligible for screening. Currently, the gray zone kind of comes if you've quit greater than 10 years. At that point, it's a discussion with your doctor in terms of what the risks are. I think a lot of people would like to know if they're, you know, if if we've kind of come to that river crossing where we're trying to decide whether or not to go forward the screening study. It's a lot more comfortable than getting a mammogram or getting a colonoscopy. I think we can say that very easily to sit in a CT scanner. But there's that personal decision about maybe I'm opening myself up. I think we have to understand that what you're doing is making a decision to take charge of your health and giving yourself the opportunity that if there's something there that's treatable, it's always scary if something is on those scans, but have that conversation with your doctor and talk about those options, and then we're moving on to becoming cancer survivors right. and talking about cure. I think we got to move that needle that way. You know, Robin, um, in, just in terms of Connecticut, in terms of eligible patients, mm. Right now, we're doing better than the rest of the country, or over 10%, but there's still somewhere between 80 to 90% of patients who are eligible for these screening studies who aren't getting them. So it's really great that we're getting out the word tonight. So when we talk about having it done yearly, insurance companies are covering this now, right? We've moved that needle a bit. That's correct. Yeah, we have the recommendation from the United States Preventative Task Force. Medicare is also covering it, and insurance companies are stepping up. And I can tell you that your doctors will fight tooth and nail to make sure this is covered because that is the current recommendation from all the societies and guidelines. Are patients, when, when we ask patients to do this or when we talk to patients about doing this, is there the conversation where patients will say, well, what about the radiation? Right. So the radiation, that's a, always a valid question. We're always trying to minimize that for patients. Mm-hmm. And so specifically, the type of CAT scan for example, if you came into the emergency room and, God forbid, you had some you know, emergency that needed immediate imaging of your chest, it would be a much higher dose. We specifically are using for these screening studies, 
because of that immediate concern, the radiation exposure, what's called a low-dose CT scan of the chest. Mm. So if we're talking about the degree of x-rays, we're talking, you know, chest x-rays, mammograms, and then we're going all the way up to low-dose CT scans and then going up from there. Now, if you fly in an airplane to Los Angeles, there's a significant radiation dose you get there. It's still, you know, in and around um, several flights would equal one of these low-dose CT scans. So low levels of radiation, it's safe to do, but yeah, always a valid concern to talk about the exposure, but we're trying to limit it. So if you don't right. need it a, once a year, you're going to limit that dose. And we're not saying forever. It's really at those ages of, you know, between 50 and 80 years of age is really where we're kind of looking about um, offering this to patients. When you look at these findings, what is it looking for? What are you looking for when you get a report on these CT scans? What some of the differentiators or things that cause you to say, okay, we'll lean towards another year and we'll be okay, we'll follow this, and then what puts a radar up? So I think the most immediate thing is if we don't see anything out of the ordinary, we have clear lungs, normal blood vessels, all our lymph nodes are the correct size, there's no fluid on the lung, there's no fluid in any space, then we're just going to immediately go for the next year. Mm. If there's any findings on there, I think it's going to be a discussion between you and your physician. There's many benign findings that we find on CAT scans, and that's why there's always this shared decision-making discussion that needs to follow. The kind of things we're worried about, obviously, if you have some sort of a mass on your scan, and we're talking about something greater than three centimeters or greater than an inch, we are, are definitely going to want to talk about a decision for biopsy. And these can be nodules. These can be enlarged lymph nodes. These can be a mass where the thymus sits in front of your heart behind your breastbone. Any of these abnormal findings are going to lead to a, a discussion of next steps. The question comes when you have these small, you know, densities, meaning that if you tried to touch it, it wouldn't be anything solid. But our CAT scans are so fine and sensitive nowadays, if something is a little higher density, we actually be able to pick it up on a CT scan. And that's when the discussion comes in. Do we do you know the CAT scan? Is this a benign finding? Is this something infectious? You know, a lot of people are smokers. You can have nodules that actually are not cancer, and they can actually disappear from month to month. I've had several patients who came to me, they were very concerned, their doctor told them it was a large nodule, and I looked at the pattern, discussed with the radiologist and the pulmonology team, in the end we decided, let's repeat one in three months, and lo and behold, all those nodules were gone and we had brand new ones. So we knew there was this infectious pattern that the patient has had due to the smoking. And that's an mm-hmm. integral part of this. We talk about smoking cessation. It's so necessary because, honestly, your cancer risk immediately starts to go down. Your breathing gets better. Your risk for your heart and all the other things also improve. So, again, there's so many parts to this, but the hardest part is just having the patient to make take that first step and start the conversation. It's it's so true. And, I, you know, I equate this to mammography because one year it could be good, but then the next year there could be something. Absolutely, yeah. You know, so when you see someone that comes in, they, in, you know, they're a smoker. They, and I, I think the criteria has changed a little bit, too. It used to be 30 packs, uh, thir- uh, 20 more packs um, a year, right? And now it's uh, 30 or more packs, and now it's 20. Right. Right. Absolutely right. No, they they decreased it because they felt that they were having too much. Uh, it was too high of a cutoff. Right. And we were leaving patients who still had high risk. It was a. They kind of looked back at the study and followed up the same patients and found that they had left patients out who they could have otherwise helped. 
Wow, it's it's incredible. And you know, when a patient comes to you and they get that first CT, if the CT looks good, it doesn't mean they can continue smoking. No, ma'am. We <laughs> definitely have that conversation. Right? I am a bit of a nagger. You know, here's the thing. If it was easy to do, nobody would smoke, right? It's expensive. Um, you do have that, you know, the odor, the staining of the teeth and the hands. But all in all, this is this is something that we got to understand. It's a difficult thing. And however we reach that patient, we got to support them on that. And it's every day. You know, I've had people who quit smoking 30 years ago. And, you know, I ask them, what do you think? He's like, Doc, if you told me it was healthy for me, I'd start smoking again tomorrow. Oh, it's a constant wow. decision. It's a constant decision. And those brave people who stop smoking, I salute them because it's a hard thing to do. And it's a choice for your health. And I've had my, you know, smokers who make the decision that every day you got to give them that, you know, that at a girl and at a boy because that's a very difficult thing to do. They're very addictive and it's become part of our lifestyle. And you almost have to change your whole routine, you know, where you get your cup of coffee. They probably slap your cigarettes down on the table yeah. every day. So you got to go to a new gas station, go to a new coffee shop. All those things have to change. But yes, absolutely every day. There's so many things available. Certain things are now no longer in vogue because of side effects. But right. there's so many different ways, whether it's hypnosis, medications, support groups, um, cognitive behavioral therapy. There's so many different ways to address this. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, back in the day, as you just mentioned in Vogue, you could not watch an old movie without a man or a woman lighting a cigarette. Mm-hmm. And you just don't absolutely. see that. You just don't see that now. But, you know, kids still do things because it's cool and to fit in. And, you know, if we can Correct. stop that and, and educate. And I just don't know that we're we're doing enough of that anymore. I mean, I see these vaping stores all over the place. Yeah, no, they're, and they're, we're making inroads. You know, we're not allowing them to really advertise in the same way. You know, California just kind of went um, perhaps perhaps a little too restrictive and just restricted anything flavored. You know, um, I do understand their goal. Um, we do need to educate people. Vaping comes with its entirely new set of risks. The things and the chemicals that it's suspended in because the, the, the nicotine and these other flavors – they're not soluble in water. There's oils right. in there, and those oils engender an entirely new set of diseases for the lung. Cancer, again, where they're getting the nicotine from, everybody always, these smokers always tell me, oh, it's purified. It's not purified. You get it from the same source. It's the right. most natural source. We have it in abundance. And so we just have to think about what are we putting in our bodies. Now, there are some studies that suggest that vaping is as a bridge to quitting smoking does have some merit. Hmm. Some criticized papers because they were obviously supported by the cigarette companies, but in support of like things like the the jewel vape and everything. But I think in terms of getting them to the next step, is vaping in its you know one to one comparison is one quote unquote better than the other. I think that's still open for debate. Although technically, perhaps one if it's on this road to quitting, then that's clearly an opportunity there. But I constantly tell my patients, don't think you're there. You have to keep going. The health benefits just continue to increase. Because what the vaping does, you actually are taking in more smoke, more vapor, inhaling deeper. I mean, I I can't tell you the things you can find on the internet with in terms of, you know, vape competitions and the sheer clouds of smoke that people are are doing to themselves. So again, we, we, it's still so early. We don't have the body of evidence to know how bad vaping is. But, you know, every year there's admissions to our ICUs. 
with patients who have this profound lung inflammation from the wow. vaping. Um, wow. And so we just have to be aware of that. It has to be part of a continued spectrum of quitting. An education to our younger group, mm-hmm. you know, because they're, you know, they're, they they need they're so influenced by their peers and it's so important Absolutely. for them to to get this information understand it and they always think they're invincible you know and right. for them to be be able to see the effects of someone that's gone through it i know there's some pretty powerful commercials out recently by the american lug association well over the last couple of years showing you know people that you really just trying to get people to stop that have lost right. so much of their lives from smoking and what about the secondhand smoke doc do you have that conversation with them about their family and loved ones so usually the the people who are inhaling the secondhand smoke are the most supportive the most critical of them trying to get them to quit Hmm. and honestly when you have young ones in the house babies and everything that usually helps motivate them change their habits realize what they're doing and wanting to be around for those you know grandchildren and everything else so that they do need to be part of the conversation, but they're most supportive. And it's, it's usually these screening CT scans are part of that kind of call to the person like, hey, let's take a step now for better health later. You know, sometimes a lot of us, even though we're 40, 50, 60, we're still, you know, thinking about our life like we're still in our 20s. But you need to make, starting in our 30s, we need to make the steps so we're living better in our 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, because the diseases that, you know, even if, even if we're so fortunate that we're able to escape the scourge of lung cancer, smoking alone is just going to degrade your lungs to the point where you're at far higher risk of needing oxygen, having heart disease, not being able to get around versus living your best life in your 80s and taking all advantage of all that um, opportunity that we can have now, um, you know, in this day and age with the health care that we have available to us. So we have to kind of make those strides now to have that better lifestyle when we're older. So, you know, you're mentioning CAT scan. Are there other tools that you use for diagnosis or is CAT scan the gold standard? So in terms of getting that initial imaging study, CAT scan is definitely the the gold standard. Under, um, there are several uh, societies such as the Fleischmann Recommendations, the American College of Chest Physicians, that talk about what happens when you find those studies. And sometimes um, these guidelines are going to recommend something called a PET scan. Mm -hmm. It's not as sensitive in terms of its resolution. Think of like versus a typical CAT scan, even low dose, could be something like a high-definition television. The PET scan resolution with regards to the CT imaging is more of a standard-def television like we used to have in the 80s and 90s. But it has the added mobility of looking, does this lesion take up sugar? You get injected with radioactive sugar, goes all over your body, your brain lights up normally, your heart lights up. These are uh, tissues that you really use a lot of sugar. And if we see the nodule lighting up, that makes us more suspicious that it could be a lung cancer. It could still be infection, but that should prod us to consider sampling with a biopsy. And now we have some interesting new tools to kind of get to that next step of diagnosis. Which is definitely what I want to talk about for sure. So let's talk a <laughs> yeah. little bit about what new technology we, are, we have brought to St. Mary's Hospital and actually to the greater Waterbury community that you've used um, for some time um, and we're real excited to have now. Yes, I was really excited to be one of the first people uh, in the state of Connecticut to use the Oris Monarch. It's a robotic bronchoscope. Um, Essentially, what it does is it can take your CAT scan, and the computer allows 
uh, generates, I'm sorry, a kind of a GPS map for me to follow to navigate within the lesion. In addition, over, you know, there have been other technologies which also use electromagnetic navigation. It also has the ability for um, visualizations. So you're actually seeing the target lesion when you get out into the uh, periphery of the lung. So what I'm really excited about this, besides having this excellent technology bring to the people of Waterbury, we also have the fact that patients are more comfortable. You know, the tried and true gold standard that we've had for many years is using the CAT scanner to do biopsies. Um, you know, all of my patients who had that, I feel that they're just putting a very brave face on because you're essentially lying in a CAT scanner while the radiologist using the CAT scan to guide the needle, slowly guiding a needle into your chest. It can be very disconcerting. It can be downright painful. And as can happen in up to, you know, between 10 to 20% of patients, the lung can collapse. If you think wow. of a balloon with a piece of gum inside or like a piece of chocolate, you're essentially going through the balloon to get into that lesion that you want to see. Well, if you make a hole in a balloon, the air is going to come out and your lung operates in a vacuum like a giant balloon. And if you let that air out, it's going to collapse. Well, this can be, you know, an issue needing patients to stay in the hospital with uh, complication rates being that high with this new procedure much lower rate, um, as reported, and in my hands, less than 2% chance of your lung collapsing. But more than anything else, you're completely asleep because we're going in through your windpipe. So we're going in through your mouth via a, a, an endotracheal tube. So you're completely asleep and comfortable during the procedure. Usually procedure times run around two hours lately. Um, they can, they've been running a little faster for me. And the best part is we can sometimes get an answer the same day because the pathologists are available to us. They're looking at the tissue as we take it out of the patient. And uh, if we do identify cancer, we also look at lymph nodes to see has it spread to any of those local lymph nodes there. So increased patient comfort, decreased complication risk. It's just an excellent technology to be able to bring to the patient. And this is called the Monarch, correct? Correct. It's uh, Johnson & Johnson is the parent company. Oris uh, is, and Monarch is the uh, actual device. And while the patient is still, now the patient is sedated, right, but not fully asleep. Uh, it's like a, uh, typically like a very deep colonoscopy. Usually right. propofol is, is, is employed, yes. And the, you're, you're taking the biopsy now. Can the pathologist read the biopsy while you're still doing the procedure so you can then assess further if you need to? That's, that's exactly right. right? No, so the pathologist are usually either in the room or just outside the room. And as wow. the issue comes out, we give it to them on a slide, and they're standing and try to give me an answer right there. Some of our smaller lesions, it's a little more challenging, but, right. uh, you know, I've had lesions as small as 5 millimeters. We've been able to, to get them, excuse me, and get that uh, answer for the patient. So when they wake up, we're not only telling them the diagnosis, but we're also ordering the next steps, getting them appointments with the next doctor. Wow. So there's no waiting to, you know, for the pathology to be finalized. We keep the ball moving and making sure they understand, listen, you're part of a family here. We want to make sure you understand that we're on top of this. Let's get you the answers. Let's get you our options and find out how do we best treat this. I mean, we've just come so far. I mean, to be able to, to analyze get an answer, and the patient go home the same day with some sort of plan of care, even not exact on that day, but at least starting the process towards recovery right. and, and healing is amazing. Now, when you go in to get the nodule, is your goal, just depending on the size of the nodule, to remove the entire nodule or just get a sample of that nodule? 
It's really just to get a sample. However, I have had several instances where the nodule was small, and when I went to surgery, we actually didn't find any of the lesion. Um, we found my entire biopsy area. Right. And, uh, wow. you know, we knew we were in the right space. So that's why, you know, it, it's because they were so small. But because of the fact that it was a lung cancer, the, you know, minimally invasive surgery that we did, um, sometimes the biopsies do kind of remove nine, so much of the lesion that the body scars down and you're unable to really find any cancer remnant there. Most of the time, though, the lesions that are bigger, uh, we still move on to uh, other options in terms of radiation, surgery, and sometimes even systemic therapy with chemotherapy. What is your What is your goal for for this type for this program? Because I know we're working on a much larger scale um, with Trinity Health of New England to create a thoracic program. So the Monarch is truly just one piece of it. I know we have another piece of equipment up at St. Francis, um, a robotic-assisted program that your colleague is using. And this is exciting because we're able to offer this throughout our network. But what is what would you say our ultimate goal is in our thoracic program for these patients? So ultimately... You know, our our goal is to provide the same type of care that they'll be able to get at St. Francis down here with full service thoracic care, regardless of you know. Typically, my my preferred space to operate in is thoracic oncology, so that's lung cancers, esophageal cancers, the various tumors of the chest. I also do chest wall reconstruction, um, and and so one stop shop for our patients. Um, and the ultimate modality is really minimally invasive surgery. So I make great use of the intuitive Da Vinci robot really to, if, if there's a chance we can do it minimally invasively, meaning that it's going to be a faster recovery, there's going to be less pain for our patients, higher um, chance of a quicker recovery and back on their feet and better quality of life. Those are all the options we want to make as a standard of care for our patients in Waterbury Hospital. I mean, excuse me, in, uh, in the city of Waterbury. And it's so important for us as as a community to ensure that the patients realize, I mean, we have quality care right in your backyard. I mean, I know I, I've said this for years on this program, but there's no reason to travel. Right. I totally agree. And, uh, you know, it's going to be the same position. We have an excellent uh, resident team who provides such stellar support for our patients and community at St. Mary's Hospital. And, you know, we're excited to work as a team to kind of bring to bear. And then there's, I'd be if I didn't mention my colleagues in radiation oncology over at the Harold uh, Lieber Cancer Center, as well as the oncologists there, and then our pulmonologists, whom we work with closely in the Waterbury, greater Waterbury area and at St. Mary's Hospital, um, we're here to provide for the patient. And we work as a team to ensure that we're not just, you know, we sometimes can get into blinders, but care nowadays, especially medical care, really need to take care of the whole person. Mm. We have to talk to you about not only the surgery to remove this lesion, but what are you going to do afterwards? How are we going to optimize your right. life afterwards? Because we are taking away some of your lung function. Right. So we have to make sure that we prepared you before surgery and take care of you after surgery. And honestly, we want to prepare you so that your survivorship becomes the next chapter in your life, talking about what's going to happen for the next 10, 20, 30 years after your surgery. So and, you know, all this needs to be taken together as a team of us that right. work towards that. And honestly, the goal is to get that screening early, because getting that screening early is the least amount of lung um, tissue that the patient loses, helping Mm -hmm. keep the capacity of the of the lung intact. Yes. Yeah. And uh, and honestly, going back to the beginning, the earlier we catch it, the better chance that the patient's going to be cured by the surgery. 
when when you do have to do something more, what's some of the other procedures that you will move to for a patient aside from from the da Vinci and taking out a small section of the lung? What are some of the other pieces that you will do if it's a little bit more advanced? So the standard surgery right now is a lobectomy, and honestly, tumors up to and including almost like six centimeters can be done in minimally invasive fashion. Wow. Ultimately, we're not going to, we don't, just because we're using some new piece of equipment, it has to be the same surgery oncologically that I could do with a traditional big incision with my hands, but we're doing it small incisions. Mm. So... Um, Recently, I had someone who came back to me. Their tumor had come back uh, within their chest, and it was stuck to one of their ribs. And they asked me, do you think you could do this uh, with the robot? And a rib resection is traditionally done something to a large incision. You go in there, you reconstruct the chest. But um, given my experience, I said, absolutely, let's see if it's oncologically safe. I don't want to compromise your oncologic care just because we can do it with uh, this new technology. And um, we worked closely with a pathologist. We made sure not only was the tumor out, but sufficient margin around it. And then afterwards, we're able to, uh, you know, sew that defect because you're taking on a rib, it's a rigid cage to make sure there's support so no hernias would happen at the same time. So, and he, he did wonderfully, went home in a day and a half after surgery. And he was ecstatic with that result. So, again, we are doing everything that we can minimally invasively. Um, Would that include mediastinal tumors such as thymomas, um, larger masses, even taking out, if you need to take out more than two-thirds of your lung, we can do that uh, with the robot. Um, And really, uh, esophagectomy is also done robotically at St. Mary's. And uh, that's a big operation where you may have cancer of the esophagus. So, ultimately, though, it's about making sure we're doing the best care and not compromising a thing. And, you know, we hold ourselves to the highest standards because in the end, we want to make sure that everything is for the best in that patient's care to get them back on track, get them the, the best, um, you know, outcomes and back on their feet and, and enjoying life again. You know, I think that when in our community, when we hear thoracic surgery, people are like, what do they, is, is it just the chest? What do they operate on? So, you know, speaking as you're speaking now and talking about a lot of the different treatments that you do as a thoracic surgeon is so important. And you mentioned just now esophagectomy. Can you talk to that a little bit and what you see in your, in, in your career? Oh, absolutely. So um, with regards to my training, uh, you know, you had, you had said at Cleveland Clinic, I had trained in cardiothoracic surgery, but I had a strong focus on thoracic surgery. So if we had to just, what's the difference? Well, um, the main disciplines that I don't, even though I trained there and, and board certified in, uh, the heart and great vessels are not part of my current practice. So basically everything else in the chest besides the heart and big arteries and veins are things that I take care of. Now, in terms of the esophagus, it's the tube that runs from your mouth and throat to your stomach. It lies in the back of your chest right in front of the spine. And um, typically cancers of the esophagus can be associated with various things. Um, smoking being right. one cause. That's why I went uh, down that increased, road, Doc. <laughs> yeah, increased alcohol consumption. Mm-hmm. And even people who have uh, severe reflux, mm-hmm. um, if the reflux isn't well controlled, 
excuse me, um, people can be at risk to develop esophageal cancer. So with regards to that, um, you, if you do have reflux, uh, I highly encourage you to speak to your primary care doctor or gastroenterologist about that and see if you need uh, medications or surgery to kind of help um, address those needs to help what is essentially a preventable cause of cancer. Um, in terms of uh, the diagnosis of esophageal cancer, working closely with our gastroenterology colleagues as well as oncology and radiation colleagues, this is a devastating disease just like lung cancer. Unfortunately, it's usually identified when the tumors are quite big, when you're having trouble swallowing. It's probably mm-hmm. one of the most com- uh, uh, most common causes and presenting symptoms that people have is the tumor's grown so big that it's kind of choking off the ability of food to go through your esophagus, and mm-hmm. so you may have regurgitation, those kind of things. Um, again, it's a more rare disease than lung cancer. Lung cancer is the most common killer of um, Americans. Um, but um, it's something that is treatable. It's a big operation. It's usually anywhere from, you know, four to eight hours, depending on uh, how uh, the surgery and uh, scar tissue and and the like. But also another one, a surgery that we do minimally invasively using the robot um, to kind of help speed up the recovery, but still achieving all those oncologic ends of getting the entire tumor out, making sure we're getting adequate margins and all the lymph nodes. So the same operation that we were doing with large incisions, now we're doing with small incisions and cameras to get the patient back on their feet and recovering faster. Absolutely, and the chances of recovering from an operation that's done minimally invasive versus a traditional large surgery, you can't even measure the differences between them. The patients definitely do so much better. I mean, I've been in nursing quite a long time, and we have not done a lot of this in the greater Wadbury area. It was stuff that went to other institutions, the larger academic institutions. And knowing those patients had full open procedures, now we're able to do a lot of this locally and minimally invasively with quick patient turnaround recovery. Yeah, no, I was I was really excited. Um, several years back, I think it's almost, I think it's almost four or five years ago now. I think it'll be five years in March. I was actually the surgeon to the first robotic esophagectomy in the state of Connecticut. Um, it wow. was on a patient who was uh, eighty-one years old. Um, he was older. He had some significant heart problems. Um, he was adamant about wanting to pursue the surgery, and uh, we made sure he knew his risks. And I got to tell you, even I was surprised. The next day after the surgery, he was out of bed walking around. Um, this It was a eight-hour surgery, and he felt great, had no pain. Even I was surprised at how well his outcomes were. And he did great, and he was cancer-free last we saw about a year ago. So very, you know, very excited and have, have stayed on that journey in terms of being able to provide this procedure, something that would usually, you know, patients being in the hospital for seven to ten days, the bulk of those can be in the intensive care unit and now, you know, really focusing on this minimally invasive route, a more aggressive um, recovery for these patients. You know, you also mentioned uh, medial stinal masses. I know that, you know, I definitely have heard of them. I know of them, but maybe for our audience, speaking a little bit to what that is because you treat them and what causes them. Excellent question. So the, um, the mediastinum is everything between your lungs. So your heart sits in the middle of your chest, and that's really the medial mediastinum. Mm-hmm. So you have your spinal column in the back. You have the esophagus, 
You have your airways in terms of your central trachea or windpipe that splits into the two bronchi for the lungs. You have the great vessels, so that's your aorta, that's your central veins. You have your heart, and then in front of your heart, there are things, um, sometimes people can have goiters that go down into their chest, mm. um, but between the sternum, that's the breastbone and the heart, there's this tissue called thymus that by around the time of birth to about several years of age, it's an intense area of how our body is making up on our immune system. But by the time we hit around 20 to 30 years of age, it starts to involute and become just fatty tissue. <laughs> but when we're older, it's another rare site of uh, a tumor called the thymoma, <laughs> typically characterized by epithelial cells and sometimes even white blood cells. And the surgery for this used to be a big incision, kind of like for open heart surgery, wow. where we would cut the breastbone in half and really just peel this fatty tissue off. But now with uh, robotic surgery, we're able to do the same operation through three or four small incisions in the chest. Wow. And is this... And people sometimes even go home the next day. Oh, my gosh. Is there symptoms for this? Is it something that you find incidentally on imaging? So... The, the thing with the chest, um, Robin, is that most things, the exception of perhaps the esophagus, it's very rare for small tumors in the chest to affect things or to um, have symptoms. So usually when you have symptoms and you find a lesion and it's small, those are just fortunate patients. Right. So most of the time, yes, the lesions are found incidentally. Um, I have had a few patients who have had symptoms, and usually the tumors are, are, are pretty large at that point, or they're closer to main airways because they're pushing on things that generate that those symptoms there. I know that you sit um, on our tumor board um, and tumor conferences over yeah. at the Lever Center. Can mm-hmm. we expand on that a little bit? Because as a thoracic surgeon, you work very closely with the whole disciplinary team. And what is the goal for a thoracic surgeon as you review cases? What is the goal for the patient, the patient care, and actually all the growth within the whole team? So a tumor board is really an integral part of cancer care nowadays. All the disciplines have them, and thoracic surgery and thoracic oncology is no different. Um, it involves all the major disciplines involved to fancy care, so focusing on lung cancer, tumor board, thoracic surgeons, myself, and some of my counterparts from Yale New Haven are present. Um, pulmonologists are present in terms of knowing the patient and their underlying lung function, how strong are they, what are their performance status that is, could they undergo an operation? Mm. The oncologists are there also to weigh what other therapeutic options. And then in terms of uh, alternative local options for treatment, radiation oncology is also there. Right. And so we all bring to bear our entire knowledge spectrum to kind of optimize the care for our patients. Sometimes uh, I presented a patient at a tumor board and surgery was not the decision. And um, I offer those opinions unvarnished to the patient to help them understand, A, what the options are, and B, what the agreement of the doctors was in terms of what was the best option for them. Um, it's, it has to be done in a way with this multidisciplinary approach because that's the way we learn. That's the way we kind of bring to bear the most current understanding of what the best cancer care is. And so it's always an exciting thing when I learn something new or the new study and we kind of teach each other about 
well, let's, let's bring to bear how this new study applies for the immediate care of our patients. So we're always trying to apply the la- latest data of how do we bring the best cutting-edge cancer care to our patients. When is there a decision, one, if you do do surgery, or, or if not, when is there a decision, okay, if we don't do surgery, do usually they turn to radiation or do they turn to an on, um, a type of um, oncology treatment to reduce the size of tumors? So typically based on the stage, that is, what mm-hmm. is the size of the tumor, where mm-hmm. has it spread, if it's spread to the lymph nodes, the opposite lung, um, other organs, the brain, those are the times we start involving things like systemic therapy, that is uh, medical oncology. Nowadays, even in the last five years, the treatment for options for medical oncologists has remarkably changed. We have such a host of new medications and targeted therapies in the toolkit. And getting back to the diagnostic options that are so important, we want to, the, the oncologists really want to make sure we have sufficient tissue to do all the genetic testing, to do all of the immunohistochemical staining, to know what new options do we have. Sometimes nowadays they're actually, the patients will just be given a pill for their right. chemotherapy. We wow. don't know no longer need to do all those uh, other things. Then we have the immunotherapies, where I've just seen remarkable patients who, you know, perhaps before the uh, introduction of these checkpoint inhibitors and immunotherapies, perhaps would be given, you know, months to live. Nowadays, they can have such a remarkable transition where all the cancer is gone from their body. So we, we work together to say, okay, what's the most current data? Is surgery an appropriate treatment for this patient? Is it, should it even be involved? Is it something that perhaps for this patient, chemotherapy and radiation would be better? Is it simply chemotherapy? Um, and so we really want to stay cutting edge and afford that patient the best options for cure. And sometimes that doesn't mean, and it's not something patients want to hear, um, chemotherapy fills most patients with dread. Yeah. But we have so many new options now. And, and the side effect profile, you know, and some people tell me about the radiation their friends or relatives had. Radiation has changed remarkably so in terms different. of the dose monitoring, the side effects, um, the complications people have. Remarkable, remarkable ways that we've um, staying close to the new literature, staying close to what the best data and best guidance is to um, get the best results. You know, I know when you and I first met, you had never really been down to this area, to St. Mary's, right? Right. And right. I I'm really, I was so proud and so excited to bring you around because everybody knows I'm such a Waterbury girl. And I couldn't wait to bring you around and to meet this team here. And just tell me what you had said to me. I'd love for the audience to hear it. You, like it was the best kept secret, right? Yeah, you know, it's just, I was so excited to meet every person I met. It was such warmth, such greeting, such excitement that we're building something together. Mm-hmm. Um, no silos. I have so many new cell phones in my phone now that, you know, <laughs> the doctors here, there's no, we, we don't, there's no put on pretenses here. You know, mm-hmm. I need help from my patient. I'm just going to pick up the phone and call them right away. And so, you know, today conversing with several uh, physicians about their patient, what, do we, what should we do next steps? If I have a question, just getting on the phone. And so keeping in close contact, it's a close knit community, but there's, uh, we rely on each other to make sure we're delivering that best care for the patient. And it's just such warmth. 
and uh, nearly a family-like atmosphere. Really, really just excited to be part of the family. Yeah, we are super excited to have you. And, you know, the key to this is to bring the level of quality care to this community with individuals such as yourself. And we've had so many other specialists that I've brought on very recently that I'm like, I, and back in the day, I would have never believed, you know, that we would get such caliber here. But it's really exciting to see. And I, I think that as you grow and you work with our teams to grow, there's so many good things to come. And, you know, we really need to not go any further than our own backyard. Right. One thing I wanted to mention is, do you see, I mean, there is the population out there that are non-smokers, that we can, people can get lung cancer. Have you, have you seen that? And I'm sure you have. And, and what is the difference and, and how do you, how do you come about it? So I would say somewhere in the range of perhaps 20 to 30% of the patients I see, I've never smoked before. Um, and never had any smoking exposure. And those are the those are the times that when we find it incidentally, it's it's such a you know amazing case because if you're a non-smoker, you have no reason to suspect a lung cancer. You right. know you have no indication to get screening studies. And uh, and the reason for that is is because it would mean so much extra radiation for people that you you know to, to find those people who have never smoked. It's such a vast number that the amount of radiation would be so high. And the incidental findings and benign findings would be so much higher. So we know that with smokers, the risk is higher, but that's what makes it all the more devastating when we find it in a never smoker. However, we also know in the never smoker population that there are certain targeted therapies that are, are you know, more applicable to them than they are in the general smoking population. Oh, wow. So, again, we typically find them um, incidentally. Um, and so I think if, you know, nowadays with all the transparency that patients get with regards to the medical record, right. you know, I just want to urge our listeners, sign up for your chart, look at your data. Um, we, we make great pushes to make sure every single nodule, we're trying to bring to bear some new technology so that every nodule and every scan is going to be tracked. And so we know that make sure that patient knows their results and that they're taking charge in case there is that incidental finding. And uh, but yeah, so it's not treated any differently. Although the patients who are non-smokers, they do have stronger lungs. They are they are generally have less um, you know other conditions associated with smoking since they don't smoke, um, and uh, they're generally better surgical candidates, and they can do better. But unfortunately, sometimes we discovered in those never smokers a little later. Um, right. And so we have to work together as a team to get them the best treatment. Right. Because if it's a, it could be an incidental finding they just found on a, a chest X-ray, either because they had a cold or, you know, they're ruling mm-hmm. out mm-hmm. pneumonia for whatever reason. And then mm-hmm. they find yes. something like that. Um And sometimes there's other scans you do, and then you clip the piece of the lung, right, where you may be having something else, and they get the base of the lung, and then they see something. Right. So a lot of abdominal studies, um, like you get a CAT scan of your abdomen or your stomach, your colon, the the abdomen actually goes up to, uh, you know, kind of almost nearly mid-chest. So you're going to look at the bottom aspect of the lung. Uh, lung there. And sometimes we find things and that's when we, uh, you know, we're, we're very grateful for those incidental findings. We're able to make sure those lesions never get to the point of, of, uh, of spreading or growing. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, if we, we kind of circle back 
to, you know, the importance of screening, the importance of not smoking? Maybe let's bring it back for our audience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Lung Cancer Awareness Month, so if you're a smoker over the age of 50, smoking greater than 20 years, please, please, please talk to your doctor. Um, you know, your primary care doctor, your pulmonologist, your friends about how getting it. Sometimes, you know, the um, even NVRA or, or Naugatuck Valley Radiology Associates can help you plug into the people to get those screening studies done. We're going to be working with our colleagues to set up a screening program. Um, but smoking cessation, if there is one single thing we can do, one simple thing that costs virtually nothing, but yet will have remarkable ability to extend your life. It's quitting smoking. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the studies are 100% clear on that. And if you need help, ask for it. We are literally waiting to help people quit smoking. Anything we will do, we will make sure you have everything at your disposal to help achieve it. You know, whatever we can do to kind of ease that burden, because it is a difficult thing to do. We realize that, but it's also one of the best choices you can make for your overall health, helping with cardio, uh, you know, cardiovascular disease, lung disease, um, stomach, and other ailments. Just generally bringing it back, get out there, get tested if you if you're eligible and start that conversation with your physician. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of our, and you and I have been out a bit on the road talking to our primary care doctors. Everybody, hopefully now, post-COVID, is getting back on track with their annual physicals. Yes. And if you are a smoker, make sure you have that conversation with your doctor, just like you, a woman does for her, her um, mammogram and just like a man does for his PSA. Have that conversation. Mm-hmm. And we all do for our colon, so we all and have colonoscopies, colonoscopies, right? As well. Yeah. Well, those we could do every ten years, so we could slide. Right. Yeah. <laughs> unless <laughs> there's something, unless there's something, and you know, right. the key too for these CAT scans that I did want to throw out there is these low dose CTs are quick. Right. They're they're and they're not as uncomfortable as a mammogram. There's no. nothing like you know uh, you know a prostate exam or anything like that. You lie down, you get the scan, you leave. Um, it's just um, much much easier to tolerate, much easier to tolerate. And there's no contrast with the low dose, right, Doc? So you don't have That's to have correct. any injection? No injections. So important. So, Dr. Kachala, I wanted to thank you so much for joining us tonight. I, You know, I... I, again, want to remind everyone that we're introducing this new Monarch robot-assisted bronchoscopy. So it's a robot-guided, the navigation system at St. Mary's. And, Doc, you've done a few cases already, right? Yeah, we had our first uh, two cases at St. Mary's. Obviously, I've done uh, many others at other institutions here in uh, in Connecticut, but we've done our first two at St. Mary's. Very excited. The team is very excited. And everybody, um, good results all around. And St. Mary's is very used to robots because we've had two for quite a while. Our robots are very busy. Right. right. We're, we're actually we're hoping to, to get a third, so, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we're almost too busy with the two we have, and uh, and and uh, we're trying to fight for some additional robots to serve our patients. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. And um, we're going to be having the Monarch available in the lobby, right? We're going to have like yeah, a... Yeah, we're going to show like uh, it's kind of like a, a look and see. Um, and uh, I'll obviously step by and, and, you know, try to kind of allow patients to kind of see what the Monarch is and what it looks like. It's, um, you know, it's two pieces, and uh, when you get down to it, the part that does all the biopsying, it's so amazing how it can contort itself um, to get to all those hard-to-reach places in your chest. 
Well, Doc, again, thank you so much for joining us tonight. This is Dr. Stefan Kachala. He is at 133 Scoville Street in our medical office building at St. Mary's Hospital. Phone number there is 203-709-5900. You can find him on our website, trinityhealthofne.org, and type in um, thoracic surgery, and he will come up. Um, and also, if you just put his name in, Stefan Kachala, K-A-C-H-A-L-A, you will also find him and learn more about him. So, Doc, again, thank you so much for joining us tonight. It was a pleasure, and I look forward to having you on again. Robin, looking forward to next time. Have a great day. All right. Talk to you soon. I want to thank everyone tonight for joining us. We thought it was super important for us to bring Lung Cancer Awareness Month to you. We always do a lot with breast cancer awareness and with the addition of Dr. Stefan Kachala to our team here at St. Mary's and bringing this newest and latest in technology with this Monarch Robotic Assisted Bronchoscopy bronchoscopy. It is super important for us to ensure that the community knows of all the latest um, technology that we have available. We, again, will be having the Monarch a robotic-assisted um, robot in our lobby um, very soon, and just watch for upcoming information. We will probably post it on our Facebook page, uh, Twitter, all the great things that our marketing team does, but we will get be getting the word out there so that you can stop by St. Mary's and check out the equipment. So again, that was Dr. Stefan Kachala. He is a new thoracic surgeon here at St. Mary's Hospital, and he is at 133 Scoville Street in our medical office building. You can find him on our website again, trainingehealthofne.org. Um, remember, take care of your loved ones. Don't smoke. Stop smoking. Remember that secondhand smoke. It is so important. And make sure you have those conversations with your physicians to have your annual CAT scan. If you are a smoker or you've had a history of smoking um, for over the, you know, and maybe you stopped 10 years ago, but you really should have that CAT scan to make sure that you are clear. Because the sooner we find lung cancer, the earlier we can save you the earlier we can get you on the path to healing. So this is Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital, Trinity Health of New England. Thank you so much for being with me tonight. We will be back again in two weeks. Johnny wants me to bring a program on healthy eating. So we will do that. We will get a program on healthy eating for the holidays. Have a great weekend. Take care.